Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. This week, we're joined by Boston Globe Senior Newsroom Developer Vince Dixon. Vince's job is to create interactive and data-driven visuals for bostonglobe.com. He came to the Boston Globe from Eater. You may remember Eater from our episode with Mona Holmes of Eater Los Angeles. Vince is from Chicago and previously worked at ProPublica and the Chicago Tribune. Vince, thank you for joining us. Sure, thank you for having me. Vince also created something a couple of years ago for his blog, Code Review, which is a look at 28 Black pioneers in journalism, design, and technology. He did this for Black History Month in 2019. It's fantastic, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. But first, our usual opening question. Can you tell us the story of the path to your career in journalism? So I've always had an interest in in journalism, even when I was in grade school. I think more than that, I had an interest in just writing and storytelling and creativity. I would write plays, and I wanted to be a filmmaker at some point when I was younger. And when I was in high school, there was an opportunity to write for a teen newspaper that was geared to Chicago Public School high, high school students. So I wrote for that, and that gave me a little a taste of uh, what reporting was like. So we uh, wrote our own stories and reported on them. And through that, I got an internship at the uh, Chicago Sun-Times. And then that's where I kind of got a real feel for an actual newsroom and decided to either go down a journalism path or a filmmaking path uh, when I went to college. And it just so happened that I just took the journalism path and studied journalism in college, came out of college, had a couple internships, and then uh, went to grad school. And that's where I learned the uh, digital journalism uh, side of the industry. And from there, I just got a few more internships and eventually uh, went to Eater, and then now I'm here at the Boston Globe. All right, there are a couple of things within that we'll talk further about. But first, Mm -hmm. how did your upbringing impact your current work? You mentioned that you were into telling stories. Like, did that have some sort of upbringing? So I guess growing up, I was always kind of like creative and, like I said, telling stories and like putting on little plays and skits and stuff for my family. So I just always liked uh, storytelling and I I came from a household where we were just kind of encouraged to dream and do what we wanted. So I think that plays a role in in my current work, just sort of creating worlds or uh, communicating uh, ideas to to different people. A lot of what you do involves uh, creating visualizations uh, of all different types to convey a story. What's your overall goal in your work? I mentioned create interactive and data-driven visuals, but more specifically on that. Yeah, so I what draws me to journalism is being able to explain things to people that they may not know. I feel like we live in a world where as time goes by, we forget a lot of things, especially throughout history. So that almost inspires me in a way to help fill in the blanks or some of the, of the gaps that we, we've allowed to occur in our history. So my goal in, in my writing is usually to uh, keep people informed and almost remind them of some of the things that we, 
And that's sort of a basis of a lot of not just the work that I do professionally, but even my personal uh, work. So what's an example of that of recent vintage? Yeah, so I recent so on my blog I have a series of of articles that I or blog posts that I've uh, written about history and the role of the role of African Americans in history that I think we forgot as a society. So I think we might talk talk about this later. But looking back at some of the pioneers in in journalism and uh, digital journalism, I think when we talk about journalism and technology and STEM, we often either forget the role that African-Americans played or we kind of water it down to, oh, there were a few firsts in, in different parts. So when the movie Hidden Figures came out and you know that was about some of the Black women uh, who worked for NASA, a lot of people were surprised that they had never heard of these people or this story. And that inspired me to look back at the hidden figures in journalism and sort of reintroduce them to American, the American discussion on technology and, and journalism. I'm going to uh, change the order of what we were going to do. We were going to talk about that towards the end, but since we're talking about it now, I do want to touch on it. I guess the, the first thing that I would ask is, I want to tell the story of a few people that you focused on, but first, do you have a favorite one or one that you feel it's vital to be educated about? I don't know if I have a favorite because I like all of them and I, I think they're all important. Yeah, all 28 that I've covered, but a lot of people we know about, you know, Ida B. Wells. Um, I think she, if I had to choose a favorite, she would be one of my favorites just because uh, she was an early pioneer, not just in journalism, but in data journalism, which is just in of itself is a very unique field. And it's something that we don't uh talk about that much. And you can see the evolution of that in certainly current work. I want to touch on three other people, if, if you're mm -hmm. willing to educate uh, us on them. The editor of one of the most popular Black newspapers, Timothy Fortune. Yeah. Uh, so Timothy Fortune, or uh, I think he also went by T. Thomas Fortune. He was born into slavery in like the 1850s. And then uh, during the Reconstruction period, and when slavery was over, he was able to get an education and go to college where he studied law and journalism. And then after that, he was able to publish his own newspaper in New York City. It was a Black newspaper, and he became known for speaking out against racism and lynchings and discrimination. And it, it became one of the most popular and influential uh, Black newspapers in the early 1900s. And He's on the list because we don't really, he's not a household name, but at the time he was as influential as W.E.B. Du Bois and even Frederick Douglass. So a lot of people, his voice was very well known and influential in the Black community at that time. The way that this is set up, I just want to make, kind of paint the picture for people. This is on your website, VinceDixonPortfolio.com. It's titled 28 Black Pioneers in Journalism, Design, and Technology. There is a brief write-up by you, and then there are 28 links that you can click on, and each link takes you to a story, a couple hundred words, some a little bit longer with a nice picture that relates to what the story is. Another one that I wanted to uh, bring up was Marvell Cook, a labor advocate who was the first Black woman to write for a mainstream newspaper. Can you educate us about her? Yeah, so she was uh, 
one of the first Black women to write for a major newspaper, which is, I guess, basically saying a white newspaper, white-owned newspaper. She started off writing for Crisis Magazine, which was a Black publication published by the NAACP, very popular at the time. And one of her biggest stories there was sort of an expose on domestic workers at the time. So she and another reporter and activist disguised themselves as domestic workers, and they stood outside of, I guess, sometimes Black women would have to uh, stand outside of uh, different department stores, and white people would come up and sort of hire them for the day or the week or whatever. So she did that, and she exposed some of the challenges and abuses that those domestic workers went through. So she kind of, that was a really popular piece at the time. Then when she moved on to other Black newspapers, she eventually came to the Compass, which was a white-owned newspaper, and she was the only Black woman at the paper and one of two uh, Black people at the paper. And there, she kind of continued this this expose, in a way, on, on domestic workers. I mean, she also covered, like, drugs in the, in the inner cities with children and prostitution. She's also known for starting one of the first newspaper guild units at a Black newspaper. So before she went to the Compass, she was at another newspaper, Black newspaper, where she started the first labor union there at the paper, which was the first Black labor union uh, unit, a part of the newspaper. Pioneer in investigative journalism and in labor labor unions as well. And then the last one, this is not necessarily a specific person, but one of the things I liked about what you did was you wrote about people who weren't necessarily reporters or editors or things of that sort. The train porters who ensured that Black stories got told. That was the headline. Uh, Can you explain that one? Yeah, so those are the Pullman porters. As many people might know, they were the the porters that work the the trains, the uh, Pullman trains, um, they were exclusively Black men. I guess it was sort of like a branding uh, decision by the Pullman company. So what happened was during uh, the Jim Crow era, um, a lot of Black people in the South were facing basically domestic terrorism and many abuses and segregation. And there were people in the North who would contact some people and Black people in the South and tell them that, oh, we don't have those problems here. You should move here. So Black people started leaving the South in droves to the point where it started to hurt business in in the South, uh, because a lot of the Black people there were the laborers and and blue-collar workers at the time. So a lot of white business owners and politicians didn't like the fact that people Black people were migrating to the North. So they started trying to uh, stifle the the communication between the North and the South. And one way that people in the North were encouraging people in the South to, or Black people in the South to come to the North was through newspapers. So there were a lot of Black newspapers that would uh, tell them how great it was to live in the North and all the opportunities there. So a lot of Black uh, towns and politicians actually banned Black newspapers. So what some newspaper editors did was they, in order to get their newspapers to Black Southerners, they gave them to the Pullman porters because Pullman porters, by being on a train, they would travel from the North and the South and connect the two. So the Pullman porters would sneak the newspapers onto the train. And then when they would go to various stops of the South, 
they would toss the papers off the train so then that black designated black people would come and take the papers and then distribute them to to black people so in an age where the first amendment was being challenged and stifled by racism the pullman porters were able to find a way around that forgotten journalism heroes certainly the project is 28 black pioneers in journalism design and technology we go from journalism past to journalism present and i want to talk about your current work with the boston globe and one of the things that i like you showed me a few examples of what you've done with things such as covid coverage and the graphs and the charts that go with that i work in information presentation too and what i like about your work is that in trying to convey things it seems like you're often trying to present the idea of a lot some or a little whether it's covid related an investigation into the department of corrections a look at the arrest numbers on january 6th in washington dc just to use math what i'm what i'm talking about there's not necessarily much of a difference for you between X and X plus one, but with the charts that you use, you really work to convey the difference between X and six times X. And I'm curious what advice you would give to people who want to do what you do on, in terms of what the keys are to conveying numbers in uh, online. Yeah, so I, I like the way you described it we do go from like large and medium small uh, numbers and i the key to that is being flexible i think so we often get numbers and sometimes it's a huge database and sometimes it's you know small figures and we have to figure out how to convey that in a in a engaging way and i think the the trick to that is just be there isn't a one size fits all approach to it it's looking at the number and the specific story and figuring out a tailoring the the story around around that or the visual around that idea whereas when you're writing you know you just write things down and you reorganize the the paragraphs but with a visual there's so many different options on how to visualize a, a stat that you just really have to be flexible and tailor it to whatever the stat is. Can you give a recent example of, of a situation with the globe where you had to kind of try and figure out what you were going to do? We've been working a lot with COVID numbers um, and figuring out how we can best visualize those. So early in the pandemic, uh, one of the pieces that I worked on um, was visualizing how many people in Massachusetts were being vaccinated. So there's many different ways we could portray that. We can just show the number or show charts. But the way that I thought was, would be interesting were, was to show the total number of people in Massachusetts and represent them as, as, I guess, dots or icons on the page. And then just highlight what portion of that group is vaccinated. So throughout the earlier days of the, the vaccination period, we could see, because we would update this this uh, graphic every week, we could see the dots being filled in slowly to sort of show the uptake of vaccination in Massachusetts. Uh, so that's one way. And then we also, so that was one story, but we also had another article that just had a bunch of charts, like traditional bar charts and line charts that show the uptake as well. So for people who aren't as visual and didn't really um, 
connect with the dots, they could look at the charts as well. So one of the things that I appreciated that my local newspaper hasn't been doing, you separate out booster shots in charting vaccinations per day, because if you don't do that, the numbers can get tilted. What kind of steps do you take to avoid being misleading with what you're presenting? Yeah, so we, at least with data, we're always doing what we call bulletproofing. So we don't just crunch the numbers, we're always testing them and making sure that we get the same result if we're using like an algorithm or something like that. And just like you would fact check when you're writing a story, or you're speaking with sources, we always fact check with data as well. So um, not just taking everything for granted, but making sure that mathematically it makes sense. And just like if someone tells you, if, you, if you're writing a story and a source tells you something that doesn't sound right, you check it out. We do the same with data. If something doesn't look right, then chances are then there's a reason for that. So we have to sort of investigate and interview the data again. Can you walk us through a typical day for you in your job? Sure, it varies. So at my job, uh, occasionally we work with reporters. If they need, if they're writing a story that's data-oriented, sometimes we'll help them uh, analyze the data or gather the data um, and then visualize it. Sometimes we look at what reporters are working on and we suggest data viz ideas for those stories. And then Sometimes we're working on larger projects um, that are very immersive and interactive and visual. And with those, those can take, you know, weeks. With the smaller stories, we, because we're a daily paper, we're, you know, cranking those out in hours. But sometimes we work on larger projects where we're doing a lot of research that can take. And a typical day is sort of a mixture of those two. Occasionally we'll be working on a longer term project and then we'll get pinged uh, by a reporter who wants who needs a data analysis or chart for a story that's going to run in like three hours so then we'll kind of like stop what we're doing with the longer term stories and then help them with that so it's kind of fast paced and you never know when that's going to happen you can just be focusing on something else and then all of a sudden you get a, a request so it's pretty fast-paced and exciting. It all sounds awesome. Uh, what are some of the tools in your toolkit? It depends. If I'm working on one of those bigger projects I was talking about, usually I'm working with you know JavaScript and HTML and coding those things. Out. If we're analyzing a data set for a reporter or for a story, we're using things like Python or even just you know Google uh, Sheets. Sometimes We'll get an idea for a, a very like visual interactive that we've maybe never have done before. So then we have to look and see what libraries are out there or maybe adopt some new uh, tools that we've never used before. And most of our like quick charts for those stories that come, you know, in the middle of the day and we need something in a few hours, we use a tool called Flourish. Um, which is just a data viz tool that creates these charts and maps and graphics um, on the fly. So you just kind of enter the data and then the, the system creates the visuals for you. I know that a lot of writers, myself included, have a little bit of timidness when it comes to learning the coding aspect of the role. Do you have words of encouragement as far as that goes? 
it's it's a that one is a, a tricky question to answer uh, only because you'll hear a lot of people saying you know everyone should learn to code and everyone should should do it don't be afraid but they kind of leave out the part where sure anyone can can do it but to do it well requires a lot of practice and expertise so I would say you should journalists should not be um, intimidated by code and it's definitely helpful to learn uh, how to use code to analyze data and use it to your advantage but that said you don't have to become a developer just uh, as a as a journalist so if you're if you don't want to become a, a develop a developer and spend you know hours learning how to be a professional coder then that's okay the versatility that it provides for someone like yourself though that's that's i would imagine is really helpful yeah it's very helpful and but at this point a lot of newsrooms have that expertise available. Whereas like maybe 10 years ago or even 15 years ago, there wasn't like no one like me on, on the staff. So, you know, individual reporters would just kind of have to take it upon themselves to figure those things out. But now I think a lot of newsrooms have either a dedicated team or at least one or two people who can help with those things. I want to transition to your work at Eater, which uh, was where you worked before you came to the Globe, because there are some really interesting projects in there. Just a few examples. What brands are behind Trader Joe's Snacks? That was uh, something that you combined both visual and uh, written. You did a study of fast food chains and whether the CEOs and their employees donated to Republican or Democrat-oriented political groups. You did a deep dive on tipping in restaurants and bars and how it encourages racism, sexism, and harassment. He did a piece explaining how groups work together to get their food pictures to go viral. Wide swath of pieces. History as well. You did a long-form feature on Father Divine. You've done a number of pieces on related to Black people and whether they're welcome in places like Starbucks, where a few years ago, a couple of Black men were arrested for trespassing. Can you give us one piece or project you did at Eater and walk us through it from idea to completion? So the piece that I won a James Beard Award for, the Thrill Ride, basically that piece, we followed a, a food deliverer around. And so the way that that idea came about was we... Well, I wanted to um, do a project where we use fitness trackers on someone. And so we kind of brainstormed different people in the industry that we could uh, do this with. And of course, food delivers came up because they're always on bikes and they're in New York City in particular, their food delivers and bikers are very, uh, I guess, aggressive in, in their approach. So we decided to put a, a fitness tracker on food delivers and just see what we might find. And so as we were brainstorming this, we also came up with the idea to also uh, throw a GoPro on, on the deliverer just to see like what it's like to, to be in the streets of New York on a bike. And then we would sync the, the data that we got from the fitness tracker with the video. So I collaborated with the video team and a video videographer, Maria, with that. And we created this immersive 
piece where the reader can not only see, I guess, using bio data, what it's like to be a food deliverer, but also see from their perspective what it's like to be on a bike in New York City and weaving through the, the traffic. So we gave the GoPro and the fitness tracker to this to a couple of deliverers for a day. We analyzed that and then we synced up the the data with the with the video and then we visualized some of some of the data with like little graphics and charts. It's very cool how you're able to take big stories and make them individual and personal. Is there something to that? Yes, that's extremely important when especially when dealing with data, because data is so depersonalized in a way, and it's so robust that it's always important to sort of look at the big picture and then zoom in. So I try to do that with every story that I, whether it's a data story, even just a a writing story. Um, Usually every story has a big picture. And because of that, you can always zoom in on a particular person. So like I said, with a thrill ride story, we wanted to look at what is it physically like to be to work in the industry? And then we just found specific people to exemplify that. I mentioned your ability to do that at a personal level related to yourself. And it, it reminded me of one of the things that I read in the last two days about purse clutching and an individual study that you did on that. Can you tell us about that one? Yeah, so just with my personal blog, I like to just write about the interaction between like my just personal life and ideas and data. So this purse clustering is just something that I've noticed, you know, as a black male, you, you notice little behaviors that, uh, little microaggressions, I guess, and, and biases that people might have. And it happened so much that I wanted to just document how often this happens and then uh, see what I found because you experience it, but you experience it so like sporadically that it's like hard to remember and see patterns. So I just wanted to see if there were any patterns. So basically I, for like a year, every time I noticed that someone might've like clutched their purse or something, I just wrote down like who they were, what they look like and what time of day it was just to see if there was anything there. And just what I found was mostly that, you know, it's, it's not always just like a white black thing, you know, every people from different backgrounds do it. So we all kind of have these implicit biases. And what I mostly learned was just looking at some of the notes that I wrote, because I also like had a column for notes. I just noticed that there's different reasons why people appear to to behave the way they do. Um, So that was the most interesting uh, takeaway from that project. You've done a number of of other pieces on your website. Were there any other ones that you wanted to discuss? With the Pioneers piece, that was, I did that for sort of like Black History Month. And it just so happened that every year I do a, 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 like a big piece on Black history. After the George Floyd incident, there was a lot of talk about, you know, police brutality the relationship between police and the black community. So I I noticed that a, one of the themes in the in that discourse was that a lot of people were unaware or claims to be unaware of this fraught relationship between uh, police and the black community. 
So that was kind of weird to me because I feel like I've heard so many stories over the years. So I wanted to just go back through history from the beginning of the police system and just document every single uh, major incident between between Black people, you know, being killed or harassed by police and the police department. So I created this sort of interactive visual piece where I document the history of of police officers and and the Black community. And from the very beginning, it's always been tension because um, people might not know that the first police departments came from slavery. Um, And so there's always been a racial, racialized component to policing in America. It's a very comprehensive uh, piece. I'm actually looking at it on my screen right now with a lot of photos, uh, a lot of visuals uh, to go with the stories which are, are told in a way that you can read kind of a little at a time, then see the pictures and learn more about each of uh, the things that you are talking about. You can go to vincedixonportfolio.com to see all of this stuff. I'm curious. So I learned from reading your 28, 28 Black Pioneers in Journalism. I learned of the movie, The Black Press Soldiers Without Swords, which I think I talked about on this podcast briefly. I read the book, The Race Beat, I'm curious if you have any recommendations for learning more about Black journalism. One of the, one of the, I guess, pioneers that I included on the on this list is there was a, a book published in 1891 that chronicles the African American press. Uh, so it's sort of like a who's who of Black journalists and editors and Black newspapers. So I would recommend that. It's called the Afro-American Press and its Editors, uh, published in 1891. You know, it's a 100-year-old book, but it's, it's really eye-opening just how many Black journalists and editors and newspapers there were. And it, it kind of touches on the reason why, the, the need for black, the Black press during that moment in history. Also, the Light of Truth, which is basically a collection of Ida B. Wells' uh, work. I think it's like almost like a full collection of her, of her work is definitely something I would recommend. Okay. As for yourself, what, it, what are your planned career pursuits? I'm currently at the, the Boston Globe and I'm really enjoying uh, being there. We're, so I like to uh, produce a Black History project every year, usually around Black History Month. And we're currently working on something exciting that I can't talk too much about, but I'm really excited about um, that, where we're going to also look at the history of, of Black the Black experience um, in America. So that's something I'm very excited for. Okay. What advice would you have for someone who wants to pursue the kind of job or career that you have? We typically have people who are just writers or editors or essentially publishers, but your, your work is a little different. What advice would you have for someone who wants to do it? I would say this is a great career for people who uh, like to be open-minded and flexible. And the, the biggest advice I would have was, would be to be open-minded and flexible as you pursue this career, because what you're doing now may not, the technology may not exist even in like five or 10 years. So be more interested in storytelling and the the broader, bigger picture, and don't 
focus too much on the specific technology that you're using to to do this. So if you want to get into this career, start telling stories and do it with whatever you have and focus on the just storytelling in general and not just how you're doing it. Journalism certainly ever-changing and ever-evolving. Is there a journalist or a journalism organization that you would like to salute, one that you're not affiliated with for their good work? I'm not affiliated with uh, with a current with a organization now, but NABJ, I think it's definitely a, the National Association of Black Journalists is, is a good organization, especially for young, uh, budding uh, African-American journalists. Um, they have a yearly an annual career fair, which in a conference that I would highly recommend for a young Black journalist. We have had Vice President of Television, Ken Lemon, on our podcast as well. Certainly appreciate the work that the NABJ does. Vince Dixon, thank you for joining us. Best of luck. Thank you. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.